when I'm out in the icon, I can fly within a 50 or 30 or 50 mile radius. And I've gone an entirely different adventure than if I was flying a traditional aircraft. And I think that's sort of an understated part of the feature of the icon. Hi, I'm Paul. In this episode, I'll be speaking with Craig Fuller, the founder of Freight Waves Inc. and the new CEO and owner of Flying Magazine. Now, as our preview alluded to, he's also an owner of the Icon A5 Amphibia seaplane. So we'll be talking about in this episode how the aviation industry is rapidly evolving right in front of our eyes and how he envisions these changes shaping the future of Flying Magazine. And one of the things that I underappreciated, you know, I looked at it originally thinking I was going to shut down the print magazine because for me, print feels like a legacy of the past. Uh, and that was certainly a, a bias that I had in the early days. But what I didn't understand about print that I now do is that print has a connection with a reader that isn't really capable or isn't possible through digital medium. Freight Waves is often referred to as the Bloomberg of supply chain data and information. So while this episode delves into the new adventures, the next generation of flying will take us on, Craig also discusses how some current supply chain issues might most directly impact the uh, aviation industry. One of the biggest risks, frankly, from an aviation standpoint is about fuel, is we cover a lot of trucking stories at Freight Waves. It's very difficult for trucking companies of any type of freight to hire truck drivers. It's going to get worse as the infrastructure bill gets implemented. So we'll begin into that as well as the best entry points for those interested in aviation as a possible career, especially given the recent evolutions that the uh, aviation industry is undertaking. What I think is because there's going to be so much desire and an investment that goes into the industry to create these EVTOLs and, and flying taxis, if you will, or flying drones, is that it's going to op open up a whole new set of opportunities that having first-hand knowledge as a pilot means that you will have an ex a lot of career options for many, many decades. This episode is a look into the future of Flying Magazine supply chains, and the aviation industry as a whole, and how the Icon A5 seems to have brought all of them together. When I have a really stressful day, and I've had this happen a few times, is now that I've rediscovered aviation, is that I will get in the Icon and I will fly, and I completely forget about the problem that I had. For me, it's a, a great way to sort of engage uh, outside of business. It's a great way to sort of bring family into it. And it's a great way to sort of have a, an adventure and get lost in the moment. This is Adventure Flying. I guess just introduce yourself, introduce, you know, your, your work with Freight Waves and also how that's transitioned into Flying Magazine. Yeah, so I'm the uh, founder and CEO of Freight Waves. And a couple of months ago, I had the opportunity to buy and acquire uh, Flying Magazine. So Flying Magazine has been around for 95 years. Uh, it is the most iconic name in aviation as it relates to media. And for me, this is equivalent of buying the Yankees. If, you know, I grew up reading Flying Magazine. I've been an aviator since I was 13 years old. Uh, started, I got my pilot private license at 17. And uh, for me, it's sort of going back to, to, you know, where I started my aviation experience, uh, sort of reverting back to one of my first laws, which was Flying Magazine, which really helped to introduce the concept of flying, what it means to be a pilot. So in many ways, I am uh, helping my 13-year-old self uh, 
rediscover or achieve a goal that I've always had. So, and can you introduce freight waves as well? I mean, I how how would you describe it? Yeah, so we're you know often called the Bloomberg of freight. Uh, so what Bloomberg does in the financial parts of the economy, we do in the physical parts of the economy. So the movement of cargo and basically how cargo is moving through the economy. Uh, Freightways tracks uh, global information, so we're we're monitoring global supply chains. We see approximately eighty five percent of the global global physical cargo movement. Um, so what's happening around supply chains is really important to us because we provide both media content and we have journalists that write and and tell stories about what's happening around the physical economy and around supply chains. And then we have data that. Uh, companies that have very large and robust supply chains used to make better decisions, mitigate risk, uh, forecast, and, and benchmark their businesses. So uh, effectively, what we're doing at FreightWaves is providing that intelligence that's really important. And I think right now, because of all the issues around supply chains, it's becoming that much more important for companies to understand what's happening. And so that's what FreightWaves is. A, a large part of what we do at FreightWaves is we have a media component. And I am a student of media. I have learned to really enjoy uh, the media business and tell stories about what's happening. And when I decided to get back into aviation earlier this year, uh, I started consuming content uh, related to aviation and Flying Magazine was one that I uh, actually went to and felt like there is an opportunity to really uh, invest in the brand and uh, create a whole new experience as it relates to Flying Magazine and remind people about why they love learned to love to fly. Can you talk about, I, I'd love to get deeper into that, but just set the table a little bit more, your experience as a pilot. Do you remember when you got the bug and, and, and how you first manifested that? Yeah, I was 13 years old when I first uh, did my first, uh, looking at my logbook, uh, uh, the first entry in it was when I was 13 years old. I can't, as far back as I remember, I've always been interested in aviation. The only two things that I remember from my childhood that I would have been very young uh, was the movie Top Gun. I was six years old when it came out. And I drugged my parents to the theater uh, probably a dozen different times to watch the movie Top Gun. And then my dad had a PC and it had Microsoft Flight Simulator. And I remember flying out of Meg's Field in Chicago and just it was part of my experience part of my childhood and but i was the kid that you know would take flying magazine and rip out pictures of aircraft and put them on my wall i was the kid that had the model airplanes hanging from the ceiling so i i have been always been an av geek and for me this is uh it's been a passion that i've always had and so i had taken a 20-year hiatus uh, from aviation uh, uh in college to just stop flying no particular reason, just got busy doing other stuff. And earlier this year, I got back into it and I ended up buying the Icon. I did a lot of research, looked at a lot of uh, different types of aircraft. And I was doing this specifically, uh, getting back into aviation was just to pursue the hobby and get back in the air. And I looked at a lot of different aircraft that were out there. And if you think about the 20 year evolution of, of aviation is that there's been a lot of new entrants in the market. There's been a lot of new technology. And I wanted something that I could get excited about, but also be challenged with. And, and the icon represented that. 
Was it the the idea of fun, it sounds like, or just the fact you had taken 20 years off and you wanted something easy to fly? Was it kind of a combination of those two things? It was, I think it was the fun element. Uh, certainly when I did the research, the fact that it was easy to use, it was easy to fly and easy to learn in was important to me, but that wasn't the most important criteria. It was about something that would open up a whole new set of experiences. So when I was looking at getting back into aviation, I didn't have any, you know, I have five kids. We have a large family uh, and my wife, uh, you know, wouldn't, we would have to get a really large aircraft, a plane that, that I would not, based on my skill set uh, and time, be able to fly. Even if I had taken, you know, I have 300 hour pilot that had taken a 20 year hiatus. So my wife would never put our entire family in a plane that I would fly because it would have to be something big and powerful. And so for me, this was just about a personal aircraft that I could fly. And uh, when I looked at all of the different planes and the options, I wanted something that was fun that opened up a whole new set of experiences. I live in East Tennessee. It's a very mountainous part of the country. I think it's gorgeous. Uh, we also have a lot of water around us. And the thing that appealed to me about the Icon was that it was able to to not only be a, a plane that I could take and you know pursue my flying passion, but I also happen to like boating, like to be on the water. It's a big deal here in East Tennessee. And the fact that this could combine both of those uh, hobbies in some ways was really appealing to me. And one of the really cool parts about the Icon is just the world that it opens up to you that you wouldn't get through a a land-based aircraft or a land-only based aircraft. You get all of that, but you also get this entirely new set of experiences that is only afforded to you because the plane can go places that a few aircraft can. Were you in, had you done any seaplane flying or training before the A5? No, and I, I have to admit I was very, very scared and intimidated by it. So it wasn't mm. it wasn't something that I I didn't know if I could do it. Uh, I did a lot of research. I kept reading. One of the things that you know I found as I looked into the icon was a lot of the content, a lot of the media had been focused, you know, even the photography was on the ocean. So one of the questions I kept wanting to know is, can I take this to the Tennessee River? Is it wide enough? Is it long enough? Is it something that is capable of landing in the lakes and rivers in East Tennessee? I just didn't know. And so uh, as I dug into the research, I found that it, it to me, seemed like it was quite possible, uh, but I wasn't sure until I talked to uh, one of the folks at ICON uh, that reaffirmed that the plane was, was certainly capable of it. And then when I got actually purchased the aircraft, I had an instructor, an ICON certified instructor come out and uh, it, it is it is completely different than everything I expected. I was this wasn't a situation that I wanted to take, you know, chances. I didn't want, this wasn't just about the excitement and the adrenaline. It was, I wanted something I could safely operate. And so uh, for me, the fact that it can take advantage of all this natural water we have around and the, and the mountains that we have around East Tennessee, but also do it safely, I thought was pretty appealing and pretty exciting. So as a quick aside, ICON has a nationwide network of certified flight instructors who can train A5 owners in an area of their choosing. So if you buy an Icon A5, we have an instructor that can train you in your own backyard, if you will. John Staines is one of those instructors we discuss here. 
you can humor a couple of icon guys at this part of the conversation. We do pay it back in a few minutes as we discuss how flight training is such a pivotal element of what what seems to be Flying Magazine's readers. You can get John Staines. Uh, you are gonna. He is an awesome instructor. He came to Chattanooga over the course of a few months uh, and trained. Uh, we spent. I think we had fifty hours of instructing by the time we're done. And that sounds like a lot because you think about. I think. Part of the challenge was I had taken a 20-year hiatus. So I had not only did I have to learn how to fly the plane on water, but I also had to re-basically learn everything about aviation that I had forgotten. The muscle memory comes back pretty quick, but but all of the rules and regulations and techniques don't. And so John uh, spent a lot of time getting me just back to flying and then uh, also time learning how to fly uh, along the water. And one of the things that I would say uh, is that the training was incredibly robust. Uh, you know, having five kids, you, I, I think a lot about my family and the importance of safety for them and, uh, you know, want to be around for when, you know, my, my two twins, when they, you know, get married at hopefully the two girls at 45 or 50, when they get married there, I want to be around for that. So uh, in order to do that, I, I wanted to make sure that Whatever I did, I was fully trained and fully capable. And John was an incredible instructor, a very thorough instructor. So I can't speak enough. I think one of the reasons I have such a great experience in the icon is as much to do with John as it is anything, because he he was able to really take me through all of the all of the procedures and just continuing to provide the level of of uh, training and education that you would want. Yeah, so it's, you've obviously spoken to the importance of, of safety, which is, is paramount, obviously, but also sounds like, you know, adventure is just as important to you. Yeah, look, I, I think the whole reason that people, I think there's a lot of paths for why people get into aviation. Some of them do it because it offers a great career. Others do it because they're, you know, they're sort of engineer minded. They like mechanical things. They like these machines. I happened to enter aviation because of the, what it could, in terms of a journey and the adventure of being a pilot, uh, of, of being able to see the world in a completely different fashion. And in many ways, the icon, what I think is really powerful about it is it opens up an entirely different world that a land-based aircraft just wouldn't be able to do. And, and so being able to fly on these lakes uh, in, uh, Again, you know, on the rivers and lakes of East Tennessee, and we have a lot of water around here and a lot of mountains around here, just enables you to go to places that you wouldn't be able to do with with another aircraft. And one of the things about it's interesting because one of the things about the icon that I think is underappreciated is is from a safety element is that you you can fly over the rivers and stay over the water. And this is something that John really reinforced for me is. You know, if you have the chance to sort of navigate the rivers and navigate the streams of water, it actually, you have a runway right below you. Like as long as you make good judgment and you're avoiding the typical hazards that you would want to uh, avoid, you, you essentially have a runway. So anytime you have a problem, it's always there. And I think what it enables you to do is, is, is feel very comfortable flying through uh, these mountain, the, these, the rivers as they, the mountains as they're sort of snake through the rivers and sort of see the gorges and fly at, you know, at a, a lower altitude than you would want with a land-based aircraft because you've got this central runway below you. And so one of the things I love to do is fly the Tennessee River Gorge, which is outside of Chattanooga, 
fly into the where the river cuts into the mountains. And I think it's one of the most beautiful places in the world because you can sort of snake through East Tennessee, uh, you know, through these really gorgeous passes that you just wouldn't be able to do in any other aircraft, if nothing more than just safety. Because if if something did go wrong, you know, this is the thing that every pilot trains on. If you're in an aircraft that doesn't isn't doesn't have the ability to land on water, you know, you're you're in pretty rough shape. You're trying to land that thing on water. So the great thing about the Icon is it does that, and I think because of it, it enables you to take advantage of of some of these fantastic features that you can only see in an airplane. You you've kind of already started to do this, but do you? Can you describe like the perfect flight or the most memorable flight you've taken? It doesn't have to even be the icon, but what is what is a flight that stuck out to you and just kind of take us on that journey a little bit? Look, I it's the flight that I do all the time. It's so I live in my my, my plane is parked at a class Charlie Airport in Chattanooga, uh, Lovell Field, which is the main airport, the Metropolitan Airport in Chattanooga. So it's a control to tower. Uh, but I, I park it there and then I always head west. So I, I go through the mountains and go through the pass and I'm you know, I'm typically off. So I, I leave the class, Charlie, I'm a thousand foot above ground. And then I, as soon as I start to descend and ATC now knows me, so they sort of know what I'm about to do is I, I cancel, uh, you know, my transponder goes to the BFR 1200 and I, I fly into the gorge and I, I will stay 20 to 30 foot off the water. I get really close into formation. And then I speed up the aircraft a little bit. Uh, and I fly just right above the water where it's basically you're you're just snaking across almost because you're not touching the water. You're not a boat, but you're right above it. And it gives you this really amazing sort of view of the water, of the mountains, of, of everything around it. There's something about that experience that I really do. And I love taking people out uh, that you know, family and friends that get to experience it because for them, it's a totally different world. And I think, you know, we certainly have the ability to fly over the city and see the downtown scape. Uh, everyone loves to do that as well. But when you get right above the water, or you land on the water, I think there's just something completely different about that experience. Now, I have not taken the icon uh, out to the coast, so I haven't flown over the ocean or over some of the you know places in Florida or, or the Carolinas. Uh, to be able to experience it uh, down there. I, I strictly use it to fly through the mountains of East Tennessee. When John Staines flew with me, he he kept saying, I have to get the Icon folks out here because he's like, this is one of the most beautiful places to fly is you have this gorgeous gorge that sort of cuts through East Tennessee, these amazing rock uh, formations and, and mountains and water. And it's just the perfect place to fly because it's you have all the water and you have the city. I mean, you have the great, sort of adventure of a big outdoor community and you have a city not too far uh, away. Mm. And so I just think it's a, it's an incredible place to fly. Uh, it's something that is, I'm fortunate. And frankly, I would love to see more icons out here. Um, it is a head turner too. I joked with John when I was flying with him that in some ways I wish I had the plane when I was single because it is, <laughs> it is better than having a Ferrari sure. because it, and what's, what's cool about being in a small town is that, you know, I've posted a couple of videos and photos of the plane on social media. And now there's the, the icon sightings and I'll get texts from random numbers and notes, uh, notifications on Facebook where people said, hey, I saw you or um, 
I think I saw you. Were you here and and so place? And so it's just it's a really cool experience uh, to, to be able to do it. Well, I think your enthusiasm is awesome, and people are really going to respond to that. And and you know, dovetailing or I guess transitioning into Flying Magazine, has there been you know you've, a couple of months? I think is when the acquisition was around Osh, right? But have you received? Any feedback so far, one or two common themes people want to see, or even that you've wanted to apply since you acquired it, that you guys are starting to work on? Yeah, so this is, you know, Fly Magazine is an iconic brand. It's one that I grew up reading. It's one that a lot of people grew up reading. And it's got a very fanatical reader base, uh, particularly people who have had it for, for you know, have been subscribers for, for many, many years. It just has a very proud following. And and so that is certainly encouraging and exciting. But one of the things that I think is is the reality of flying is that at least digitally and even in print, there's been an underinvestment in sort of newer age digital media. And, you know, as a industry, as an aviation industry, I think Icon is certainly working on, on this, but other brands are as well, is how do we get new people to take up aviation? And I think what Flying Magazine has the opportunity to do is sort of bridge the gap between the sort of aviation legacy folks that have been in it for many years, uh, as well as sort of this newer generation that are trying to learn to fly or want to learn to fly or just are aviation enthusiasts. And how do we, or how do we reach the person that would love to fly if they knew about it or realized how sexy and incredible uh, this entire experience is. And so at Flying Magazine, we're trying to, to really invest in both avenues. So we're putting significant investment in digital. I think Flying Magazine has really been behind the times and sort of keeping up with sort of digital media. So we're making significant investments in that. That's my background. You know, I looked at it originally thinking I was going to shut down the print magazine because for me, print feels like a legacy of the past. What I didn't understand about print that I now do is that print has a connection with a reader that isn't really capable or isn't possible through digital medium. One of the sort of challenges of social media is attention. And so we get into our Twitter feeds, we get into our Facebook feeds, LinkedIn, whatever, you know, Instagram, whatever your sort of uh, preferred social media, and you're just inundated with information. You're on the feed and you're, you know, you may be going from aviation one second to the next is a political post to the next is some is your friends uh, posting something you disagree with about college football and or family friends you're constantly being uh, challenged with with all this sort of distraction that takes place through social media so it's very hard frankly to keep the audience engaged and keep the reader engaged so if you're telling stories that require a little bit more of, of a journey, if you will. It's hard to do that in a digital medium. And one of the things that I found out through print, and it's not just about aviation uh, magazines, is that there are lifestyle magazines that have always maintained a connection with the reader because they have beautiful photography and beautiful long form stories that are evergreen. They're not news really centric but they really sort of take you in this journey. And the nice thing is you can get lost in the journey. It's, it's very similar like a book. Because when you're reading a novel, you're sort of lost in that story and you're, you know, something that really captivates you. 
And I think it's only possible in print uh, that you can actually accomplish that. And so one of the things that we're trying to do at Flying is significantly upgrade the quality of the magazine. It starts with the cover and it starts with not optimizing for newsstand, which is how Flying had done before. We're actually getting rid of newsstand because we think newsstand, just the economic model doesn't work. Really in, in improving the quality of the magazine, the paper itself, the weight, the cover, the way it feels, really doubling down on beautiful photography and beautiful long-form stories that are timeless. And what I say is that if you're going to print something, it should be a piece of art. It should be something that my wife would be proud to have out on the coffee table. That's what really we're trying to go to is, is bring the essence of what it means to be an aviator or to be an aviation enthusiast back into the magazine. And so that's what we're focusing on right now. Flying now has the largest editorial staff in its 95 year history uh, today, and we're just getting started. And what we're trying to do is become a central hub of media content and media engagement uh, for aviation uh, that really goes across all avenues. So if it's a career, there's fantastic content that can help drive your career and all the opportunities available to you. If you're a student pilot, you're wanting to learn how to fly and learn new techniques and regulations, we'll have content for you there. But if you're getting into it or want to, to really experience the journey of being a pilot and all that means to you, that's really where we want to invest in. So it's really looking at aviation as this lifestyle and what it means to be a pilot which is everything from the aircraft and what they mean, but also the places that you can go with it and the experiences that you can have with, with the plane. And so that's what we're focused on right now is really doing that. One of the things that you hinted to is this uh, virtual conference that we've got. We do a lot of those at Freightways. We do a couple a month. They typically get anywhere from 30 to 40,000 people that tune into our virtual conference at Freightways. Uh, this is when we're doing on the future of aviation, what's next in aviation, and we're going to be bringing in manufacturers, uh, technology companies and suppliers and just thought leaders about what is the future look like for aviation. So think of this as a virtual Oshkosh. Uh, and that's what we're hoping to do. And it's free. So you don't have to go anywhere. You can tune in and all of the content is available on demand. So if someone misses the icon conversation, they can pick it up, uh, you know, a couple months later, or if they're looking at buying it, maybe they hear this podcast and they're really wanting to learn more about the icon and what was described in this virtual event, they'll have the opportunity to do that because content will be available on demand in perpetuity. So depending on when you're listening to this episode, that event is or was on October 27th. The event is What's Next in Aviation, which you can either search or you can find the link to all of the content. It'll be on our, uh, our site at iconaircraft.com as well. The next part of my conversation with Craig focuses on the different permutations of aircraft and, and, and really almost career tracks that are occurring within the industry. It seems the, the future of aviation, what's getting people excited, or at least what, what, what people are talking about or what's becoming mainstream, is the, the eVTOL, the, the battery-powered, the, you know, the drone that delivers your Amazon goods. It's not as much about flying as fun, but flying, I, I think, to intersect into your world to help solve some logistical issues and environmental issues, of course, 
do you one agree with that and two is it still a primary like what's the balance between you know flying as a lifestyle flying is fun and also wow flying can solve a lot of the issues that we're having and is starting to with a lot of these technological innovations i think it's all of that right so if you look at the evtol space there's some technical challenges that have not yet been figured out some regulatory challenges that are still not yet figured out and and so but it does we in the next couple of decades if not sooner and, and much likely sooner is that the dream of the flying taxi or the flying car will be upon us and it's in a different it's a different type of aviation experience and so it's not so much about an adventurous uh, sort of uh, experience in an EV tall uh, it's more about at least in these sort of early phases of it is it's about delivery. And I think cargo or logistics uh, will probably be the first thing that we see for EVTOL simply because of the safety elements and the regulatory environment will probably be more favorable to uh, allowing uh, these flying you know, drones, if you will, to take place and in, in, uh, over airspace. It, I just think it's from a regulatory standpoint, if a cargo EVTOL crashes, there's a lot less scrutiny than if that happened to have passengers on it. So I think that will be sort of the phase one will be cargo and logistics distribution. And then we'll sort of move beyond that into the flying car. But that's going to happen within the next decade or, or at least within the next couple of decades, if not sooner. And what I would say about that is that was one of the thesis I had with Buy and Fly magazine is that aviation is about to go through this massive renaissance. You mentioned electric propulsion and what the electric engine can do. Uh, what it means from a logistic standpoint. Morgan Stanley says or projects by 2040 that the EVTOL or the what they call urban air mobility space will be a trillion and a half dollar industry. And by 2050, a nine trillion dollar industry. And to put that in perspective, the US trucking industry is about a $700 billion industry. And Morgan Stanley is saying that the EVTOL or the urban air mobility space will be twice the size of that by 2040. And that's really within my lifetime, hopefully, and certainly within my kid's lifetime. And so you think about how transformative the internet and the mobile phone have been, a lot of folks believe that aviation will experience the same level of renaissance uh, in the near future, and it's upon us. And so it's a really exciting time with all this technology, being able to solve carbon footprint, being able to uh, provide electric propulsion, which means you can have a lot more motors or propellers or propulsion on an aircraft. It just opens up a whole new world for us. And I think a lot of new experiences that are completely new. I don't think it takes anything away from the hobbyist or the lifestyle element of aviation. In fact, I think in some ways it will help propel it forward. I think it will uh, give people the confidence in the, the comfort of flying in a very small aircraft. And one of the things that I often hear uh, when I talk to people is I'm not comfortable getting in a small airplane is what they say. And what they don't realize is that the technology has evolved so much that, and the training has evolved so much that if you have a pilot that is safe and a pilot that is trained, uh, that it's, that a lot of the, the risks of a small aircraft just aren't, aren't there the way they have been in the past. It's the avionics, it's the autopilot, it's and, and as long as the pilot is continuing to make good judgment and continuing to keep their skills refined and, and, and keep up with the training, 
then it's a very safe activity. And I think what I think we'll see with sort of the emergence of this eVTOL or urban air mobility uh, part of society is that the, when the, cap, the venture capital pours into that side of the world, we as pilots will also benefit from a lot of that technology uh, investment and evolution that will take place, as well as just consumer acceptance and willingness to get in a much smaller aircraft. I, I think I'd be remiss not to ask you supply chain and how it affects GA. I mean, I know that's not the sexy and fun stuff, but I mean, you are the guy there, right? Like, can you speak a little bit to how Flying Magazine you think will approach those issues? Will it touch it at all? Do you want Do you want to marry the two? I guess, what's your preview there? Yeah, look, I, we already are, you know, some of our most successful articles actually have been written by the Freightways staff. And so we already are syndicating content. Um, and so Freightways covers the cargo supply chain or cargo freight movement already. We have two full-time aviation reporters at Freightwaves, and that's all they do is, is discuss sort of cargo movement. So the Atlas Airs, the FedExes, and the UPSs uh, of the world and anything that's sort of cargo related, which became a really important topic, and I think is an important topic right now, but certainly during COVID sort of ignited it to the top of our most trafficked content. And now at Flying, What's interesting is that the flying audience actually likes the supply chain and freight cargo content better than the Freightways audience does, at least based on engagement metrics, is that actually a Freightways article may get, say, 10 to 20,000 for a cargo article, whereas on through Freightways, the same article, the same exact content on flying may get 50,000 views. So it's interesting because I think there's a desire for business news relevant business content um, in the flying audience that intersects with, you know, the industry of aviation. And so one of the things that we're planning, but we've not yet done, we have a lot of work to do back in the sort of training and journalists and just these various topics, a lot of work to do there first. One of the things that we over time will evolve to is, is a large business to business section to flying. Mostly it'll be digital. I'm not a big believer that B2B content should be in print just because the type of stuff that B2B companies or the type of news that people consume tends to be much more timely than what, you know, than reading a long form article about, a, you know, flying to Anchorage, Alaska. So just very different sort of use cases. And so one of the things that we're really focusing on is, is over time to invest more in B2B media. Your question about supply chain is certainly something that is, is top of the mind, should be the top of mind for everybody. I think there's a lot of real concerns about supply chain and its impact in every industry. And so you have things like uh, semiconductors, which has really impacted the automotive sector, which is also uh, is and will continue to impact the aviation sector. It isn't because it's a much smaller sector uh, and isn't as re reliant uh, on the same supply chain as the automotive manufacturers are. It hasn't been as impacted. A lot of it is to do because the cycles of aviation uh, technology are frankly slower than they are in the automotive sector. And so we don't see as, as much exposure to uh, that issue as, as what you do. But you have heard stories of suppliers having a lot of issues around supply chains and getting these goods. And you got to remember that you can assemble a full airplane and you can assemble everything about it. That plane can't not roll off the assembly line until 100% of the components are there. And so 
this is the risk of supply chains is you can have what can seems to be the most inconsequential part that the manufacturer runs out of and they can't produce the aircraft and we see it in the automotive sector with semiconductors we see it in the heavy truck market with things like transmissions transmissions you really need but you can't as a manufacturer particularly around aircraft because of the way the faa regulates it you can't substitute or not finish the aircraft it has to be 100 intact the way it was spec and so that is going to show up at some point in a pretty big way in the aviation sector if not already, uh, as the supply chain crisis continues on. One of the biggest risks, frankly, from an aviation standpoint is about fuel, is we cover a lot of trucking stories at freight waves. It's very difficult for trucking companies of any type of freight to hire truck drivers. It's going to get worse as the infrastructure bill gets implemented because you're talking about a trillion dollars going into the U.S. economy over the next decade from the government, which hasn't really been a factor in the physical economy for the past couple of decades. It's about to be. It's the largest spending bill in history uh, for the U.S. government spending on physical infrastructure. And it's bigger than the high, the entire inter, interstate highway bill that took 50 years. We're talking about a massive amount of money, and that's going to create demand for domestic manufacturing. So you're going to see a lot of, and that in turn, creates a lot of freight. So freight's going to become harder to, to, to find. And employment is going to drive a lot of domestic employment away from trucking jobs, which tend to be a job of last resort, into other manufacturing. So let's say, why does that matter to aviation? Because you have to get truck drivers to drive the fuel to the airports, whether we're talking avgas or jet gas or even mogas. And so you think about that. If you don't have truck drivers to drive your grocery items, you're not going to have the same truck. You're not going to have truck drivers to drive fuel. And so if you don't have truck drivers to drive fuel, you're not going to have fuel at the airport. And so this is a really big concern that everyone should be paying attention to. And so one of the best recommendations I should, I, I should state is if you have the opportunity to top off your tanks, go ahead and do it because you may find yourself at times uh, not being able to get fuel. We've not we've seen it in a couple of different scenarios, mostly in the jet side. It's been isolated. Luckily, it hasn't been a major issue. But going into this winter season and into next year, there is a large level of risk in trying to transport fuel. Fuel is not, you know, the fuel that we get at the airports for the most part is not coming through pipelines. It's coming through trucks and you need truck drivers to transport it. And so if you don't have truck drivers to transport it, and it's the that's the tends to be the most regulated part of truck driving. You don't want a new driver driving, you know, a 45,000 pound uh, uh, fuel tanker down the truck that's only been driving for three weeks. You need someone who's been in it for many years. It's going to be it's going to be difficult. And so that's just something I would recommend is that's probably the biggest risk. And that's it probably also plays into flight planning, too. I mean, if you're a young pilot you're on your map, you know, there's a smaller airport says it has fuel on the chart, but you can't necessarily bank on that given the times, it sounds like. Yeah, I think it's a good point. I would say that if you, you know, mostly as GA pilots, particularly in the icon, because it's not, it certainly won't be the fastest in the pattern. Um, one of the things you should keep in mind is bigger airports are less likely to be impacted through fuel shortages than the smaller airports are. And the reason is that there, if, Let's say Chattanooga, which is, you know, it's a class Charlie airport. 
if it runs out of fuel, it's a crisis for the city, for the mayor, for the governor, and maybe even even the federal at the federal level. If the local airport in Jasper, Tennessee, runs out of it, runs out of fuel, the only people that are going to care are the couple dozens of GA pilots that are around that airport. And I, I'm not trying to pick on Jasper, but it's just not politically going to be a sensitive issue for a long time. And so one of the things I would recommend is if you if you're looking at alternative airports and you make sure you have reserve fuel when you when you fly. But one of the things I would also recommend is if you if you sort of plan your route, look at some of the bigger airports that, you know, the Deltas and the Charlies, where you if if they didn't have fuel, it would have been on the news or it will be on the news. Those are the types of airports that are least likely to be impacted because they do get fuel so much fuel and so quickly that oftentimes they're better served on a more consistent pattern and they they're frankly better their fuel reserves are better managed they also tend to have fuel tanks on the yard which also enables them to sort of absorb these shocks and so that is just something i would recommend as an aside if you're trying to do some flight planning do you have recommendations or insights as to how younger generations should become involved in aviation it seems like tilt rotor like helicopter technology is what's seen in the likes of joby uh, these are being branded as the future of aviation. And a lot of people in flight schools are going in and doing fixed wing. Do you have a purview on maybe the best routes to get into aviation? Or do you think just becoming involved in some way, shape or form is the best way to start and go from there? Well, it's interesting you, you talk about Joby specifically because I, I got the chance to meet the CEO a couple of years ago. Uh, we have common investors before they did their SPAC, before they did went public. Uh, and I believe that investors still in, invested in it. And one of the things that they had said was, at least short term, is that the FAA is going to require human pilots to be in the aircraft. So even though this thing can effectively fly itself or the technology be there to fly itself, for some period of time, the FAA, the regulators, probably the insurance companies are still going to require human pilots. And so it's not as if because we have the ability to fly without pilots that we're not going to need them is there's going to be a period of time, and I think for many, many years, where pilots play a core role in, if nothing more, to be there for an exception that takes place or maybe a, you know, something that takes place that requires the pilot to react. I think you know, at least for some period of time and probably for many years, is the pilot will still be a part of it. So the fact that we may move to a more automated world means that there's going to be a lot of job opportunities available for people that are thinking about aviation as a career. So just because you may hear about flying taxis that are automated doesn't mean that all of a sudden one day that your career is going to be gone. In fact, what I think is because there's going to be so much desire and an investment that goes into the industry to create these EV tolls and, and flying taxis, if you will, or flying drones, is that it's going to op open up a whole new set of opportunities that having firsthand knowledge as a pilot means that you will have an ex a lot of career options for many, many decades. Uh, and I think that's what makes this so exciting. So it's certainly a career that everyone should get into. I would say that the path to get there isn't, you certainly can go to the universities. There's some great university programs that can take you through and you can get financial aid if you want to become a career pilot, maybe for an airline. There's a lot of sort of purebred flight training schools uh, that you can join to learn how to do that. But one of the best ways to get into aviation, to decide if you even like it, is to go either on a discovery flight at a flight school or go and 
if you have a friend that's a pilot and they can take you up there, let you handle the controls up in the, you know, just touch the touch the throttle and touch the yoke for a little bit. I mean, we all do it. I don't know if we're allowed to do it, but we've all done it. Uh, we're like, hey, fly for a little bit. Uh, I think that's a great way to sort of experience it firsthand and, and decide if you like it. And then if you do, then you can follow the path of, of finding an instructor who's able to sort of meet your time and financial requirements uh, to get you in the air so that uh, you can sort of decide what path you want to take. I was at a university a couple of weeks ago. Uh, a university is really big in aviation. And one of the, the dean of the school told me that one of the challenges is that they do occasionally get students who want to become pilots and for what reason just decide that it's not for them. Maybe it's a medical issue or perhaps it's just that they can't, they have too much anxiety and it's not for them. And one of the things that uh, he had said to me was their recommendation is that before students step on the campus and decide this is something they want to do or don't want to do, because he also had plenty of times where it's the counter is to go out and sort of experience what it means to, to get in the air and sort of fly the aircraft. And I think that's probably the best way to get exposed to it. And look, I think the icon certainly does it. It just opens up an entirely different set of experiences that aren't available to you. If you do it safely, you get uh, in a small town like T Chattanooga, Tennessee, is you become sort of, well, the local celebrity, the icon celebrity, because people see the aircraft and uh, it's just, I think it's, like I said, it's a, it's an amazing machine. So you're an interesting use case. Cause there's, okay. There's the, the, the young chap that wants to get into aviation and how do you get in? But there's also the person who's, you know, 10, 15 years into their career, just wants to get their PPL because they've always thought about it. You know, they say they don't have the time or they, they're not sure how to make the time. How did you find the time to get back into flying? Can you just give us a little um, insight into how you structured your training? Yeah, look, I, I think time is just a matter of priority, right? So one of the things that I think is true about the Icon that's that's not true about other aircraft is that, you know, if you think about the kind of airplane that you would end up as a, as a sort of single solo pilot that you would buy, because again, my wife isn't going to let me put all five kids in the airplanes. I might as well buy something small, something that's fuel efficient and fun, is that in many ways, because it's a new experience for me and it sets up a new set of opportunities and new adventures, is that I, I could stay local. I could stay around the city of Chattanooga. I could stay near the mountains and, and be able to experience it. it. It's different than just doing cross countries from you know going to get the $100 hamburgers. When I'm out in the Icon, I can fly within a 50 or 30 or 50 mile radius and I've gone an entirely different adventure than if I was flying a traditional aircraft. And I think that's sort of an understated part of the feature of the icon is that because it can land in so many places and can get access to so many places is it opens up an entirely different set of adventures that you would not have through a traditional aircraft. I mean, you could only fly so many times to from Chattanooga to Atlanta or Chattanooga to Nashville, or Chattanooga to Knoxville to where that just gets mundane and boring. The great thing about the icon is it sort of affords this thing. So for me, it was now I have this new set of experiences that I'm going to. I can blend my two favorite hobbies, boating and, you know, resurfacing aviation. And I could do something with my older kids because my younger kids just, I wouldn't trust my two-year-old in any plane uh, with me. Uh, he's just, he would want to grab the controls. We're not there yet. Uh, so we'll give him a couple of years. 
But my 10-year-old, my 14-year-old, it gives me a chance to go experiencing something with them one-on-one. And when you've got a bigger family and you've got a business, it's a great place to do that. And I, I think it's just a matter of time and priority. So for me, this was a way to, to, to really be able to spend one-on-one with my kids and do something that at least for that hour or that two-hour period, my attention and my time was with them and I was experiencing it with them. Like the... I think a lot of the sort of marketing material on the icon has this sort of great sex appeal at the beach, you know, these beautiful sort of torque water, these beautiful models that are sort of in there. Like, I think that's great because there's a lot lot of that sort of storyline that you, you, you get to sort of vicariously live through that as an icon owner. But the reality is there's a lot of people like me who, you know, I have, I have been successful. I've had means and I have enough time, but not a lot of time. I really have a pretty expansive schedule uh, and I have a lot of competing priorities. But for me, this is a time that I can sort of get in the air and all of the pressures of the day, all of the things that I'm concerned about, all the stress just goes away. And I found that that when I have a really stressful day and I've had this happen a few times is now that I've rediscovered aviation is that I will get in the icon and I will fly and I completely forget about the problem that I had. I've also had a situation where I had, uh, there was a personnel issue at the company and I needed to, to spend some time with one of the employees talking through it. I was able to get them in the air and it was a, a way of sort of non-threateningly talk about a business issue that we were having. And uh, it was fun because they were excited to be there and we were able to sort of talk through it. So for me, it's a, a great way to sort of engage uh, outside of business, it's a great way to sort of bring family into it, and it's a great way to sort of have a an adventure and get lost in the moment. Yeah, so special thanks to Craig Fuller, and, and thanks again, everybody, for listening to this episode. Uh, you can find more information about Craig just, just by going to Flying Magazine, uh, flyingmag.com, or uh, freightwaves.com. If you're interested in learning more about Icon Aircraft, we talked about the Icon A5 in this episode. Uh, this podcast is produced by Icon, so IconAircraft.com will give you all the information you need on the um, Icon A5, as well as just some profiles on our company and, and how you can experience the Icon A5 for yourself. So if you guys uh, happen to get this before October 27th, the event is What's Next in Aviation, if you'd like to check that out. Uh, if you miss it, obviously, or, or as I mentioned, it's archived on um, Fly Magazine's website, as well as FreightWaves, and our own at IconAircraft.com. So Uh, Thanks again for listening, everybody. My name is Paul. We will catch you on the next episode of the Icon Podcast, Adventure Flying. Take care. Thanks again, everybody.